I think we assume, or I assumed, culture is what's emulated. It's uh, how we talk and how we communicate. But I've learned that culture is actually established by the worst things that you tolerate. Are you late? Um, deadlines? How we treat each other? Are we misogynistic? Are we equitable in diversity? All these little micro things matter. But I think overwhelmingly, though, the behaviors we tolerate, can we berate a coworker? Uh, what do you do when something doesn't work out? Those things have such an overwhelming impact, even more so than how you dress, how you talk, and you know the acronyms we use in our meetings. Almost 20 years ago, our paths crossed in the sneaker world. And since then, we've been on a professional and personal journey together. We've made a lot of mistakes and had a lot of fun and even a few wins along the way. Our goal is to share our experiences and insights so you don't have to make some of the same errors that we did. And in addition, we want to help you begin to think about things a little different. So join us as we unpack our unsolicited and sometimes polarizing views on business, faith, and family with questions that make you want to unfollow. AP, we're back. Episode 8, Season 2. And today we're going to talk about how to start your career well. I'm going to ask you a ton of questions, but all of this information is coming from two guys that don't have a job. Yeah, so uh, context matters. We'll talk about that. Uh, yeah, no, I'm excited, man, because this is a conversation I think we've navigated as business professionals, all, as employees, but also as people hiring people into teams. And, you know, I, I, but I wouldn't dismiss, you know, we, we kind of joke, but yeah, I mean, Podcasting, tweeting, writing, and talking about starting a new job are all easier than actually starting a new job. So we have all the grace and the empathy for people in seasons of change and seasons of rediscovery because there's a lot of people, and we'll share this in this episode. I mean, me and Daryl has talked a lot about change and had coffee and breakfast and lunch and all these conversations with with people in the midst of some some pretty significant changes. So you know, how do you start that right? Um, you know, how do you get on the right foot, how do you assess even before the first day and set yourself up for success? So uh, we can share what went right, what went wrong, but also, you know, I, th I think it's a new landscape though. I mean, I'm, I'm an old guy now, so I, I, I think I've, you know, hopefully share a, a little learnings from uh, sometimes I got it a little wrong. So I have had four major career changes. How many have you had? I mean, six comes to mind just because each role Especially for, even for the last twelve years, each role was new. Like it, I, I'm I'm literally the guy that writes my own job description in many ways. This last one, obviously, going from you know uh, employed professional to a self-employed intern, right? I mean that's significant. Starting your own company, significant. Moving back to Texas, uh, I mean you name it. Starting social media at Radio Shack, I mean we'll talk about that too. What are the different phases of those changes? But yeah, I'd, at least six, if not more. So together, we've had at least 10 career changes, correct? At least. And we're only halfway done. So I think we can consider <laughs> ourselves experts in this. Yeah, why not? I'm, I'm, I'm why a not? certified career change coach. We know that there's a lot of guys and girls around us right now that are starting new careers. They're, they're changing jobs. Some of them have yeah. been working from home, and now they might have to be go, go back to an office. Some of them might have been in an office, and now they've got a job where they can work remote anywhere they want to in the world. But that doesn't change the fact that your biggest impact comes 
between day one and day 100. But I think you've made the case that the big impact happens between day one and day 30. So teach us today how we can fireproof those really fir- those first 30 days. And fireproof is obviously a pun, but also like you don't want to be in a job where you don't no. have a voice, where you're not viewed as capable. Like what can we really do to set ourselves up for success in those first 30 days? Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of the golden question. You know, I think typically, you know, traditional and conventional wisdom says, you know, hey, that 90 days or that 100 days is when you set your you set your mark. You can diagnose problems and get a feel for the environment. And then, you know, that allows you the opportunity to be a little more wise about some of those changes. I guess I would assert that the pace is changing so fast because of virtual work, because of uh, virtual teams, digital technology and the pace of knowledge work meaning we're having to create value in new ways that those that first 30 days is really, I think, where you set a tone. And, you know, for better or worse, um, it's really w- when you get sized up. So I think that's a significant milestone in really making sure that your trajectory or your flight plan, so to speak, is off to the right foot. And of course, that first year, you know, in any career change, I always counsel people that give it a give it a year to figure it out. But you know, let's be honest, we're talking to a guy that was a CMO for 30 days, right? And, you know, in 30 days, I knew it wasn't the job for me. And so I I, I shifted. And so, you know, I, I think as I think about those sequences in the first 30 days, right, I'd say, you know, you spend, you start as a journalist, then you become a scientist, and then you become a psychologist. And I think as a leader, especially onboarding into a new role, you've got to have all of those tools and all of those mindsets at your disposal to be really successful these days. Cause the job, especially in these big leadership jobs, I mean, they're so robust, they're so fragmented, they're so dynamic, you know, there's not one toolkit. You, you need to be able to, you know, run 10 toolkits at one time. So hence me being professionally unemployed, cause <laughs> it, it can be a beat down. All right. So what's it mean to be a journalist in your first 30 yeah. days? Yeah, you know what? I think being a journalist, um, and uh, flashback, I was actually a J school graduate, school of journalism at Florida A&M University, a uh, little known fact there. Um, it means asking questions, right? And so I think there's, when you start, right, I think there's three conversations you have to, you have to ask and you have to, you have to have. So I say three conversations you have to have uh, with not only your managers and your, your peers, but also with yourself. First has to do with culture. Right. I think we overestimate our ability to change culture and inversely, I think we underestimate the extent to which culture changes us. And I think that first 30 days, I think you've got to get a sense for, okay, what's the real culture? Keep in mind, you've been an outsider during whatever it is, a two, three or even a four month interview selection process. Right. You've gotten the best representation of the company. They've done their reference check, so they've heard the best representation of you. And even when you do your diligence and you've asked the tough questions, you've researched your informal networks to find out, you know, is this CEO really a good guy? Or, hey, how's this manager? Or, you know, you've searched Glassdoor and Google for diversity and, you know, all the things about salary ranges. But the reality is, like, you don't know until you're in the cockpit. You know, I remember... When I went to, uh, I went from Foot Locker to Liz Claiborne, um, right? So, you know, one year I'm wearing, you know, Jordans and uh, jerseys. You know, fast forward a year later, you look at me in pictures. <laughs> I'm wearing like 
pointy toe boots, shoes, fitted, uh, you know, blazers and all the like, you know, and so that that's a, a visual representation of the cultural change that happens as well. But, you know, one thing to remember, too, is that, you know, culture is established by the worst behavior tolerated. And so I think part of it is there's so many things you won't know until you get, like I said, in the cockpit, in the driver's seat. So it's most important to just start soaking up that knowledge as a journalist, asking those tough questions, getting, you know, beneath the floorboards into, hey, what's going on? Not only behavioral, but I say cultural. I start there before I even go to the knowledge and, you know, the product and the business and the financial piece of it because the culture has such an overwhelming effect. All right. So repeat that again. That was such a good quote. It was culture is created by the worst behavior tolerated. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say culture is established by the worst behavior that's tolerated. Right. I think. Often, Can you unpack that a little bit for me? I think we, I think we assume, or I assumed culture is what's emulated. It's uh, how we talk and how we communicate, but I've learned that culture is actually established by the worst things that you tolerate. Are you late? Um, deadlines? How we treat each other? Are we misogynistic? Are we equitable in diversity? Do you have to walk into, you know, to walk into a manager's office? Do you have to put on a blazer? What you know, like all these little micro things matter. But I think overwhelmingly, though, that behaviors we tolerate can we berate a coworker? Uh, what do you do when something doesn't work out? Those things have such an overwhelming impact, even more so than how you dress, how you talk, and you know the acronyms we use in our meetings. And I think organizations' response to, you know, call it failure or, or bad behavior, to me, defines culture in many ways that are unwritten, they're unspoken, but they have a very powerful and potent effect on, you know, your wow. ability to, to be successful. That's so such a good point because I think a lot of times we have walked into new jobs and looked at culture as what what do I get to wear? What are their hours? Do people do lunch in the office or outside of the office, right? And maybe some or some of that is not real of culture inside of those organizations, but the idea that the worst behavior that is allowed or tolerated sets culture, I think that's fascinating, man. All right. So with that, what does it mean to be a scientist? That was your second point. What does it yeah, mean yeah. to be a so scientist? You start as a journalist, right? You're asking questions. And I literally, uh, I had a notebook by me. I take notes like all day. So if I start a job, right? And I just started one a few months ago. So I'm, this is speaking from actual experience, right? Is I've got notes of handwritten notes. You know, so it's reading, writing, but getting into, you know, you get all the board stuff. So the sci- the journalist, right, is I'm investigating. I'm delaying conclusions, I am asking questions to seek clarity. Scientists, though, now I'm starting to test some theories, right? So now that maybe I've got some feedback, right? I say by week two to three, like I'm already starting to say, well, hey, I heard this from the product team, right? What does a scientist do? A scientist tests for certainty. A scientist um, learns through experimentation. A scientist connect dots to, to add value, right? And so that idea to like, you know, not be the, you know, as Adam Grant says, the preacher or the prosecutor. You're not like advocating for your point of view. You're not trying to force an agenda. Scientist sits back and tries to experiment, right? Test and learn their way. You know, I think and we talked about this in one of the early episodes when we both talked about our career change. It was, you know, the biggest mistake you can make when you get a new job is assuming you're the right person for the role. It's because you got the offer. 
doesn't actually mean you're the best person for the job at all. And I, I mean, I say that I would never say that if I was still at a company because I have hired people who weren't the best person for the job. I've been forced to hire people who weren't. So, I mean, there are so many decisions. That, and so a scientist, right, would test some of those theories. Hey, here's what I heard coming in during the interviews. Let me test for understanding. Um, a great example for, for you, Daryl, and for anybody that's in the creative industry, right? You know, be real, you know there is a gap between the idea that you can get approved and the idea that you think will work, right? So you get briefed, oh, this amazing campaign or this photo shoot, right? Or this thing, and you know, you have a vision for that thing that would actually, oh, it would be the one. And then you know you've got to get it approved by two or three people who, you know, you got conservative Charlie, you got negative Nancy, and you got, you know, stay late Dan, who like people who just like don't have any ounce of creativity or they just don't get it. And their decision making is actually for approvals. Right. So, you know, there's a gap between what you can get approved and what you believe in. That same thing happens in hiring. And, and so, yeah, I think the scientists is always testing their theories to not only for understanding, for clarity, but like, hey, what did you hear? Like, what did you hear about your, your role? What responsibilities did you think you would have? Well, who, who does that job now? You know, do you have the resource infrastructure? What is the budget process? like? These are things you ask, uh, you know, before an interview, but you, you just don't know until you get into the systems and, and really get into that. And I've had several conversations, and you have too, right, with people who have come into roles who now are like, oh, I, I kind of, I messed up. Like, I, you know, it's not what I thought it was. It's not meeting my expectations. And you've got to make a call. It doesn't mean it's the wrong job, but it means you're going to have to do the work to reset uh, and rediscover a path forward that works for you. And you can only do that as a scientist by testing different things. And I think you've got to do that really, really early. Um, again, says the guy who quit his CMO job after 30 days. Yeah. Boom. So if you find out that it's not the job that you signed up for, what do you do? Yeah. I think you got to do uh, two things. I think first thing is be honest with yourself. I think the reality check is so important. Be honest about what will what could change giving effort, time, energy, and what won't change. And I think second thing is be honest with your team. You know, have that candid conversation with a coworker or your manager. Um, for so long, you know, we, we kind of put up with uh, things that aren't ideal for us because of job security, because we're worried about, you know, the financial economic uncertainty or just the perception, honestly, of I don't want to be a quitter or I don't want to be seen as a person that isn't capable. And the reality is, like, if it's not a fit, well, if 30 or 60 days won't change that, Make a change. Um, you know, same thing. You know, the, the job process is one of the only, you know, it's a long-term commitment. By the time you move your family to a new, I, I know people that move their families to new countries and you've done the whole process of signing a contract only to sit, especially in these executive leadership roles and find out you were hired for a reason that wasn't totally, you know, um, honest on behalf of, of, of the hiring manager or the employer. It was, well, we actually needed you to kind of do this well, we thought you would do this, but we kind of need you to kind of just be a rubber stamp. And that's happened to very smart people. It doesn't mean you got fooled. It just means like things weren't, you know, weren't there for you to make the proper decision. And so I think you got to be honest with yourself, but also be honest with your team and decide what's best for you and your family. Yeah. Okay. So you recently had to do that, right? You took the CMO role and less than 30 days in, it became very clear that number one, it, w it really wasn't the job that you were kind of informed that it was going to be based on product and 
kind of the culture of the company. And then the second thing was, is that it was clear that it was a decision that you made out of fear versus out of like true joy, right? Because you were afraid, man, I may not get this opportunity again. It's an opportunity to be CMO. What am I going to do without this salary? But the truth is, is that you really wanted to lead in transformation and writing and to take a stab at being this, you know, creative individual outside of a W2. So what were the things that went through your mind in those 30 days? Yeah. You know, and I think that's a good, also a good uh, segue to the the psychologist, right? So you're journalists, you're asking questions, scientists, you're doing experiments on like, okay, here's what I heard coming in. Okay. Here's the reality now that I'm here. And I think the last piece, which I've experienced firsthand uh, and have the scars and, and, and the tattoos to, uh, to show for it is like, well, what if it doesn't work out? Right. And I think, the missing part is context, right? What are the landmines? What are the sacred cows? Where are the bodies buried? Like, who votes on success? These are all things that you just won't know until, you know, imagine, you know, in my case, you know, joining a company, you know, being in the in the seat to, you know, drive some change and then realizing, A, for me, you know, the psychologist, you know, part of this section is like being honest with yourself, but also sizing up what were the things that led to maybe this this gap in expectations? You know, and I think in my case, it was a few things. One was the fear that you mentioned, right? Like, hey, I, actually, I took this job because I wasn't brave enough to pursue the things that were on my heart. And it felt like a convenient, a rational, and a very legitimate pit stop. It felt like, like no one would ever, you know, fault you for, yeah, taking a CMO role and working with a, like, duh, like, that's what you do. Like I, I got all the reasons to accept it, you know, you, you talk to good mentors and I had some great mentors that helped me through the process. And, you know, like you just don't know what you don't know. But I will say this um, part of that process, though, and I've said this probably several times on the podcast, especially as the psychologist kicks in. It's not just about you. It's about the team, about the organization it's all those things. And it's like it's the process of testing your intuition. And then once you kind of get that feel, like your emotions, your gut is data, right? It's, I mean, it, it, it counts. So like, don't, don't discount the fact that there's something that doesn't sit right. You're, maybe you prayed about it and it's, you just don't have peace about it. Like that thing that you can't like describe, that feeling that doesn't go away, that voice, that anxiety, your heart get like that thing, like that's that's data like that that counts that's like don't so don't ignore yourself and i think you've probably been in situations too where yeah so i I think you've got to be honest about that and then you know i think the process right is um you know psychologist is right you call it deconfirmation right you've made a decision you've confirmed it you've done it and now you got to deconfirm because what you thought isn't there um i'm reading this book by um Brilliant researcher. I just discovered it's written 15 years ago. It's called uh, Working Identity. This lady named, uh, Herm, her, I think I'm saying it right, it's Herminia Ibera. She's a, like a Harvard researcher in like organizational development. And she talks about this. She talks about the fact that, you know, we don't think our way into a new way of acting. We act our way into new ways of thinking, right? We, we think if we just sit there and think about something that we can, we'll get to an answer. And the inverse is true. By acting, we actually change how we think. And so part of the process in a job is, you know, you assume that, hey, there's this linear process for onboarding and then I'll get it. And it's like, no, like start experimenting, start trying. And then that in the, psych- in the psychology of it, you know, listen to yourself, listen to other people there. You know, and for me, I can look back 
I could see crap. I had all the like indicators. I had all the breadcrumbs to know, but I, you know, I ignored them, man. And so, you know, I, I, I don't, um, I regret it to the extent that I wasted time and credibility and, you know, call it reputational capital with some people I really respect and, you know, the inconvenience of it. But I, I will share this. Um, I had a call. I've had a call with a couple of people from the company I was at. And it was so cool. Um, and I give myself kudos, by the way. I mean, I'm the guy that was CMO for a month. So it sounds like I'm bragging on myself. Trust me, I, I'm not. But I remember in both conversations, person told me, you know what? You made such a big impact in just those 30 days that like we, we still talk about you because you set a standard for like, you know, and I was like, I was only in meetings for like a couple of weeks. But I think that's a great example of how context matters. And so even though it wasn't a fit for me, that knowing that you could kind of get a read for an environment in 30 days and chart a course, even if I had stayed, I would have charted a course. I think that's the behavior I'd, I'd say a listener should emulate is that ability to take those 30 days from scientist to journalist to psychologist and like gain an understanding. You won't have the answer, right? None of these have to do with actually answering any of the business questions. They have to do with deciding how you best fit a, a solution and how you can move forward in a way that's true to yourself, but also true to your team. Man, which is so important because you're going to spend yeah. the majority of your day with this group of people doing these specific tasks trying to accomplish these things for an organization that you better be on board with. Like you really better <laughs> yeah. enjoy yeah. it. And, and more important yeah. than that, like love the team that you're working with. So I think a lot of what you just unpacked is what if the job is wrong in the first 30 yeah. days? Yeah. What about the inverse of that? What about during that process? If you find out, man, the it job wasn't. is even more right than I expected. Yeah. It's a good question. I think, uh, and after this, I want, I will talk about, I think I'm, I have a, I guess let's call it a hypothesis of the, the kind of four types, three or four types of new hires that happen. But I think, yeah, if like, if the job is a fit, right. Meaning, and here's the deal, you get to decide if it's a fit, right. And so no one else can tell you, I'm, I had a wise old friend from Virginia tell me, you know, when I was thinking about things, Hey, only you are responsible for your happiness. Right. And so, like, I think that's the big thing is you can get mentorship. But, yeah, if the job's a fit, you have to decide that. And if it's positive, I think that's when you move forward. Right. You know, there's some great books like there's first 90 days by Michael Watkins. Uh, Your next move his kind of part two um, is a brilliant, well-researched framework for like all the conversations, all these moments you need to have. I think what I'll probably uh I think admonished the most is the fact that most people who start new jobs, um, a lot of new jobs happen in the same company, right? So it's a promotion, it's a move. And what I've always pushed people to do, and only 50% of them take me up on it, you are responsible for setting yourself up for success. Most of the time when you're, a, you're getting into a new role um, in the same company, you're getting the role because they know you. So you, you actually don't need to really like, prove your you need to operate in a new capacity but you actually don't need to like reset i say don't do that i say stop approach the role as if you were starting from scratch now that doesn't mean you walk around and introduce yourself to your team and ask where the bathrooms are you know where, where the fax machine is but that does mean that you like take some you just time. said where's the you said where's the fax machine <laughs> yeah, you know, you know. How, how old are you <laughs> 
Yeah, but it's true. Like it's a, it's that process of like I think you've got to reground yourself and mm-hmm. like I'm a new I have new expectations. If you don't, you're yeah. going to carry the role that you were in yep. into the new yep. stuff, and you haven't reset. And I've done that before, where I never I didn't reset myself. I just snowballed into like more work, more responsibilities. It was kind of this Frankenstein role. So I think it's so important. And the same behaviors, by the way. Yeah. You bring in the same behaviors, right? So if you were leading in the middle, those behaviors are very different than leading at that next level. Yeah. 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 I think part of the biggest thing, um, I spoke to some um, advertising, uh, like early career advertisers about a month ago. Um, Yeah. They're probably in the early 20s. And, you know, one of the things we talked about was this, like starting a role and getting into it. And I think part of it is, A, not only uh, setting yourself up for success by like starting from scratch, but also like just having the time to like listen and learn and not be a know-it-all for so long. And my, you know, the inverse happens where when you're successful and you've been promoted or you've gotten this new big job and, you know, it was highly competitive, you spent so much time competing for the role or proving yourself, you haven't taken the time to actually like consider, oh, well, what do I need to learn or be different? So it's new behaviors, it's new operating principles. Think about it. You're not wiser, smarter, more intelligent because your role change. Actually not, right? So actually, what are the decision principles that I need to make, right? And so I'd say, you know, a few questions I'd ask of myself, my team, if I'm in a new role, of course, you know, I'm going to stay there is, you know, of myself, right? It's, um, what am I pretending not to know? Like you, there's something you know about this role, whether or not you had to like, and I, I know people have done this, so I'm not, you know, um, casting stones, but did you have to stretch your resume and experience a little bit to like get the role? Right. We're like, you know, Hey, they said, you know, we want somebody that's led, you know, global teams of 50 and you've actually led a local team of five. Right. And you, you know, or, you know, wh- whatever that thing is, right. Be honest with yourself about, you know, what have you maybe pretended not to know? think for your boss the question to ask is this you know what will your victory speech be a year from now like what does victory Hmm. look like and getting a very good understanding of what does victory to them look like um is so important throughout that process because i think it tells you a little bit about them but also about you know what would it look like even if if you lost and then for your team i think a lot of that understanding is like how do you work best right like how can I support you? How, how can I help? How can I accelerate? I think those are things that are, they're all very, very simple. Um, but in the, you know, in the emotions and the accolades of getting the new role, right. And wanting to show you're smart. I always tell people, don't prove to me you're smart. Spend the first year just learning. I know you're smart. That's why I hired you. I, I, I don't want you. Don't, don't, don't impress me. Like, like go learn the business and get in there as well. So yeah, if it's a role you're going to stay at, I, I think those are some of the questions I would challenge you to think about, ruminate on and, and, you know, be okay sitting in the, the tension. If you find things that don't add up, it's okay to, to like, you know, wrestle with some of those things. I think what's cool about the three examples that you gave of a journalist, a scientist and uh, a psychologist is that yep. they're all removed or supposed to be removed yeah from the thing that they're studying, writing about, observing, right? We know the truth is, is that things change even by just observing them. Like we have atoms in our universe that change just by observation. But for the case of this point, like all three of those roles should be roles where you're removed. And I think that's probably the best way to approach this new work because if you are so emotionally connected to it, 
what happens is is that you let a lot of those things go like whether they're bad behaviors or it's the ego of the role like you experienced or it's man, I don't want to let somebody else down who believed in me to take this role, right? Like all of those things are emotional. And if you really don't focus on being a good journalist, being a good scientist, being a good psychologist, you will get caught up in it. And so I think that's really cool. I think it's a really good way to look at it. So journalists, scientists, psychologists, I think we can all do that. Yeah. It's easy, right? Yeah. So let me ask you this. Yeah. We know what you just went through recently in, in walking away from a CMO role. Give us a good example of um, of you doing these three things and winning at this in the first 30 days. Yeah, so, you know, let's back up. This was probably three, three and a half years ago, right? So Patron was purchased by Bacardi Limited, a larger parent company. And my role expanded to not only, you know, be a brand leader of Patron, but also lead Grey Goose Vodka through a digital transformation, hire a global team and an agency. And so you know, a quick summary of, hey, why was that so potentially difficult was not only were you having a cultural transformation in terms of new company, new people, new hires, you also had uh, a digital transformation, which is always fraught with, you know, uncertainty, significant investment, um, you know, and leading in a global capacity where you have, you know, language and time zone kind of barriers. And, and so for many, for in many ways, this was probably the biggest change I've ever been a part of. Oh, and by the way, we had to do it all in six months. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> and all of those things you listed were internal threats. Yeah. Those oh, yeah, were yeah. external threats, yeah. right? Like the external threat was yeah. hey, Tito is on the scene. It's a mid level yeah. product that now is considered a premium spirit. They're gluten free yeah. and handcrafted. And the traditional purchaser of Grey Goose is an older male, right? Who's not involved in social media. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I think the category, the consumer was changing a lot. And here was this opportunity to really come in, not only reset those expectations, but also to really help support a team for a long term. So it was both short term, meaning launch a campaign in six months, but also long term, meaning redefine and reset the role of a product in the industry. It was, you know, so I think the onboarding process there, I walked through pretty much what we talked about. It was like, Coming in to listen and learn, even though I had been in spirits for several years, I, I didn't know a lot about the vodka category, you know, lead, meeting with the team, learning the process, learning the provenance of the product, but also listening to teams at people at all levels. So from CEO to, you know, I think, you know, associate brand managers on, you know, what are they doing as well, putting those into a formal presentation. Um, and, and that's a step a lot of people skip is like, put everything that you've captured into some document that you can rehearse back to the organization. So now it's not it's not Adrian's plan for what he thinks you need to do. Now it's say, here's what I think you heard about the problems, the potential barriers, and the possible solutions. Hey, what do you guys think? It rallies the teams, it brings them together, and then it allows you to separate, to your point, I'm not the solution bearer. I'm just facilitating the solution that's going to help all of us. And then I think that helps you diagnose, you know, some of the potential issues. And, you know, I'd say that was a hard one because there was just a lot of like turf wars and internal conflict. And to your point, our our biggest external threat, you know, with Tito's and you know, a declining category where people weren't spending, you know, on premium vodka at the same rate. But the internal dynamics were were the real threat. And I think part of that 
part of that um, learning and I think what went well was the ability to build bridges, to not be a know-it-all, be don't be the Patron know-it-all, which I probably would have done 10 years earlier. I would have come in as I'm the you know Messiah of marketing. I helped launch Patron Digital. Look at what we did. Here's my playbook. Let's roll. Get out of my way. Um, and I tried so hard not to do that. And I, I think, you know, it, we bared fruit. And I'm glad I didn't because I actually need like the, the people who I would have pissed off. I needed them. Like, so it, it wouldn't have helped me in the long or the short term to actually just, you know, be, be a jerk coming in. But I think that was a great example of coming in, uh, understanding the agenda but and trying to navigate. And I didn't do it perfectly. Like, like I said, if you're on the Grey Goose marketing team, you're probably like, yeah, I don't know. But um, no, we, we, we did really well. It was a great launch. Great campaign, and I think it defined a lot of things for for the brand. Did anybody from the Gray Groups team go through the Harvard um, business management classes with you as well? You know, it's kind of multinational company. So some of the people who worked, who touched the business in like maybe commercial ways, so they sold the product mm -hmm. or did finance or corporate services for it, touched Gray Goose, but yeah. not necessarily in a marketing or brand capacity. So I'm trying to go through the roster in my head. No, I, I think I might have been one of the only ones on the Grey Goose team. And I'm probably forgetting somebody. But no, I, not to my direct knowledge. Yeah. Well, the reason I'm leading you with that question is because I wanted to see what impact you would have had on them over that period, right? So yeah. for yeah. those of you that don't know, Adrian went through a Harvard business course with – Bacardi is a brand and you guys had how many people in your in your group? I think it was, it was our, we had 60 leaders in over an 18 month period uh going through, you know, the Harvard course coursework and you know all the time on time on site on the campus in China. I mean it was it was intense. Yeah. <laughs> it's very intense. So my thought in that was is like if you've got somebody else from that organization that's spending that much time, that much intense time with you. Yeah. You know, do you guys osmos some of that not only learning, but also like relationship and like brand energy, you know, to, to help move things forward, even when you're not there. Right. So even yeah, after you've good. left, is there something that like you planted a seed and it, it's continued on, but I guess that's a mute point. So we might just edit that out of this entire conversation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'd say part of it is good. Cause I got the, my promotion to that role was when Harvard had just kicked off. And so the professors were actually great because we spent all this time doing, you know, case studies on, you know, transformations and global to local and brands and high performing and all these things. And, you know, every I mean, over 18 months, we probably read at least 100 case studies and had to diagnose them and talk about them. And uh, like I said, it's it's a it's a pretty involved um, e executive program. I think the learning was like most of the missteps of companies we were studying. It was that it wasn't the it wasn't something external. Like transformations don't fail because you did too much. Transformations fail because you, you no, not because you did too little, because you did too much. Transformations don't work because we're too busy. We try to change everything. And so I think one of the learnings, you know, I had a chance to sit down with some of the Harvard professors and, and get guidance on this. And so I'd say part of the success of onboarding into Grey Goose wasn't even me being smart or experienced. Part of it was the serendipity of being attached to like people who were smarter than me, who could kind of guide me and, and coach me as well. And I think, you know, there's this notion that if to be a successful leader, you, you have to win. And I think what I'm learning is the most successful people are the people that ask for the most help. Like they're just really good at forming alliances, 
getting people on their side or getting on other people's side. And they don't have to actually be the know-it-all. Like that's the big thing in leadership. Like you don't have to, you don't have to be the smartest. In fact, most people, you don't need to be smart at that level at all. You don't need to be the domain expert or the intellectual, you know, it's like rich dad, uh, poor dad, right. Or, you know, rich dad surrounded himself with people who were experts in their field and he paid them well. Right. But he, he wasn't the he wasn't an expert in accounting and finance. And so I think it's such a great example. If you can, like, let your ego down when you start a new role, like let people shine, man. If you can let them shine, they'll, they'll help you shine. Yeah. And attract people to you. Right. Yeah. So you only do that by going back to your point early on of being a good journalist. I found that like when I ask people about themselves, they love to talk about themselves. <laughs> yeah. See, like this podcast, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, about 10 years ago when I took the role at Moore and Giles, I literally scheduled time with every leader at the company and went around and just interviewed them. I said, hey, tell me about what you do. Tell me about your key relationships. What do you think about our company? What do you think about our brand? Like all that kind of stuff. And it was fascinating. So to your point, I wrote all of that down. And then I kind of put it into a single page document for myself that like helped kind of guide me. And what was interesting is, is that I don't know if the data was as helpful as the relationship formation was. So the relationship formation by just asking people questions immediately fused them to me and me to them. And, you know, there's a proverb that says, even a fool is considered wise when he keeps his mouth shut. And it's so true because when you ask questions, you're talking less and you're perceived as wise because you're just taking in this information. And then if you actually do something great with it, awesome. If you don't, <laughs> there's still this, <laughs> you know, hubris of, well, he's a really smart guy. He's a really great guy. He's really interested in what I do. And you just ask some yeah. really poignant questions is all you did. So no, I think you're right. I think the relational capital you build is just as important. It, it's the fuel for everything else. The results come once you have that relationship and you can trust because, you know, and things are going to happen. Something's going to go wrong. Like in Greg Goose example, things went crazy wrong and all kind of internal things. But I was able to weather that because I had the relationships that I had built. Um, and that wouldn't have happened 10 years ago when, you know, I'm the new guy at, you know, Kate Spade, Liz Claiborne, who I just want to show everybody how smart I am. But then now I'm out on a plank because, if you're the smartest guy in the room, you can't ever really go back and say, Hey, I don't understand that. So now I've got to, I'm armored up. I'm armored in my ego and I've got to put up a front. And so I'm winning, but like I'm losing. Cause yeah, I got the project done, but I pissed off half the team. So <laughs> exactly. Because when you out punt your coverage, yeah. right. Yeah. And you don't have the answer down the road and you can't figure it out. Right. That's when you get in trouble. No, you're right. It's a good move, right? Like it's a smart move to always be asking questions and to be just be generally curious, right? All right. So help me wrap this up. So you have went through the first 30 days and you've been a journalist, you've been a scientist, you've been a psychologist. You have decided this is the right spot for me to be in. How do you go th through this first year? Well, how do you do your first year really well after that? Yeah, I think part of the thing is knowing that the first 12 months are really an extension of your job interview. I think because you're, you're being assessed, you're being evaluated. So the same thing that you're doing to be a journalist, a scientist, psychologist to understand, the organization's doing to you, right? So you might as well, you know, I guess embrace that process. It's, it's a dual kind of, you know, it's a two-way street and understand that. And so I, I think, you know, 
I think one one way I'd I'd ladder it up is probably the biggest thing you could do is just understand what type of player they they thought they hired, right? So I think now we've talked about right, hey, what do you think you're going to do? And then, but like understanding what they are getting or wanted to get is, I think, the next key, and I think it'll help you navigate what you spend the next twelve months on. Understanding that it's not linear, like there's multiple parts and process. There's multiple cells, like. There is no one Adrian. There's Adrian that can do multiple things, and it's about that fit. And so, you know, I'd say think about it in two categories, right? So one is I think your 12 months in a low-performing business are very different in a high-performing business. So low-performing meaning like, hey, business is down, sales are down, we're in turnaround, or things aren't going well versus high-performing, hey, we're doing well. If you're in a low-performing business and you're inexperienced, right, you're the hopeful, right? Like failure is kind of expected. You're trying to create value, but like they're trying to like suck just a little less, right? So that was like Radio Shack, right? Like I got hired to run social at Radio Shack because Radio Shack, you know, needed the lifeline. And the only reason they hired a guy that had not done social to manage social was because I had a relationship and they knew that, you know, if I messed up, I could probably do something else, right? Um, so I think understanding that, that's a very different 12 month process. I had the chance to learn. I had a chance to kind of grow and like get mentored by agencies because I didn't know what I was doing. So when you're hopeful, it's a very different 12 months than, you know, I'd say that that next category, which would be if you're a low performer, um, but you're experienced, right? So it's like, hey, I'm coming in as the guy to help help this turn around. I'm coming in as maybe a challenger. That's kind of great goose where like I had done digital transformations before. Your biggest challenge is like you've got to only help them avoid future failure. You've also got to, you know, I think help decelerate declines, right? So if something is bad, we got to make this less bad. And that's more about some of the partnerships. That's more about like bringing people together, getting one version of the truth, one version of what's wrong so we can fix it together, right? So those 12 months are probably harder, but more fun than you'll ever have in your career because you're able to like, create new stuff, right? Because they're like, hey, what's working isn't working, right? You know, what we're doing isn't working, so let's do something, right? Very different from the other side of this equation, right? Which is a company that's winning. Yeah, a company that's high, that's winning, that's pressure cooker, right? So if you're, you know, if you're in a, a winning company and you're the inexperienced person, right? You're coming in to like do something that you aren't quite maybe qualified or experienced for, is your job is to protect value and make smart bets. And that was me at Intuit, right? I mean, I got brought in to, you know, come in. I'd have been experienced in social, but not in B2B social, enterprise social for software company. I mean, no part of my resume said that. Um, yeah, and they were already winning, right? So for them, I was just a helper. And I think the opportunity there is like, if you don't do your job well, they'll be okay without you. So, you know, there's the risk is we don't really need you. But if you can add incremental value and help us unlock future opportunity, so you're you're a bet, right? You're like hey, if he does well, great. If he doesn't, we're good because we're we don't need you're not core to the team. Um, and then the last one, right? And I think where I was at Patron, um, you know, you're you know a high performing company, but you're also an experienced professional, right? I've I've done Radio Shack, I've done um, into it, so digital wasn't I wouldn't. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't uh, scared. I wasn't inexperienced. Like digital was easy for me at that point. Like the change part I had, I got, so that's protecting and creating value. And that's really about, you know, I think setting uh, 
building a stage where everybody can win and helping to like accelerate things that are already working. And that's, to me, that's just as fun being the hero, of the headliner, right? To me, it's just as fun when, you know, you know what you're doing, but, um, those are very different 12 month journeys based on what the company has hired you to be or hired you to do. And so I think understanding that will help you kind of have those right guardrails for, uh, you know, for how you move forward and, you know, whether you're in there to, you know, save the day and, you know, put the fire out or are you there just to kind of watch and listen and, and, and learn and under, understand that from the beginning. Man, this has been such a helpful conversation. I hope somebody out there who's either starting a new career or had just started a new career will listen to this and say, okay, let me do those three things. Like, let me be a journalist, a scientist, and a psychologist. And then also let me evaluate what type of company I'm in. Am I am a underperforming or am I a high performance company? And figure out where my role is at, right? And take stock and like, let's yep. go. Let's change the world, man. Like, don't sit still. Let's move. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fun process. So any questions on starting well or not starting well, uh, yeah, definitely reach out. Shoot me a note. I'm, I'm happy to, uh, you know, lend an ear. As always, you get what you pay for. But, um, yeah. No, I'm the advice is free. It's what it's worth, <laughs> baby. <laughs> I love that. All right, man. Well, this has been so good. Um, any resources that you've got, will you drop them in the show notes for people? Yeah, it will. There's a few books I've mentioned. You know, the Hermania Ibera book is amazing. Michael Watkins, First 90 Days, Your Next Move are great resources. Uh, it's pretty much the Bible of starting a new job. And yeah, we'll drop those in the show notes for easy access. Awesome. Well, man, thank you. I love you. I'll talk to you next week. Hey, guys, this is DC, and this was the Unfollow Podcast. We hope you like what you heard today. And if you didn't, that's okay. There's 100,000 other podcasts you can choose to subscribe to. But if you like this one, do us a favor and subscribe or share it with a friend. 